You're listening to Biceps After Babies Radio, episode 273. Hello, and welcome to Biceps After Babies Radio, a podcast for ladies who know that fitness is about so much more than pounds lost or PRs. It's about feeling confident in your skin and empowered in your life. I'm your host, Amber Brzezicki, a registered nurse, personal trainer, wife, and mom of four. Each week, my guests and I will excite and motivate you to take action in your own personal fitness as we talk about nutrition, exercise, mindset, personal development, and executing life with conscious intention. If your goal is to look, feel, and be strong and experience transformation from the inside out, you, my friend, are in the right place. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's jump into today's episode. Hey, 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 welcome back to another episode of Biceps After Babies Radio. I'm your host, Amber Brzezicki, and today I am interviewing Dr. Nicola Sykes. She wrote a phenomenal book called No Period, Now What? A Guide to Regaining Your Cycles and Improving Your Fertility. And so today I'm having her on the podcast to talk about hypothalamic amenorrhea. It's a mouthful. <laughs> we'll, she'll discuss what that is and, and we will refer to it most of the time as HA, but this is a really important concept and topic to talk about in this space because HA is often caused by over-exercising and under-fueling your body. And so I'm going to let Dr. Nicola talk about all the specifics, all the science related to it, but this is a topic that needs to be discussed more in this industry. I am all for changing your body. I am all for understanding macros and being able to, you know, have your nutrition be able to support whatever goals that you that you want to have. But there is a limit to where a lot of people take exercising too far and a lot of ta- pe- women take under eating too far and it actually your body can start to shut down because of it. And and that's what we're going to talk about on this episode. So, I think this is a really important topic. I think it's one that's not talked about nearly enough. A lot of us tend to think more exercise is better, but there's actually a point that exercise becomes unhealthy. It becomes damaging to you. Um, you know, I'm all again about using your nutrition to be able to support your goals, whether that's fat loss or gaining muscle or performance in the gym. But a lot of times we get too extreme with that and we cut calories too low and we underfuel our body. And that's not a good place to be in either. It's while I'll preach all the time, most of your life should be lived at maintenance. We can go into to deficits at you know points of time, but it should be for a short period of time. We really want to make sure that sure that our body is really well fueled. So I'm really happy to have Dr. Sykes on the podcast to be able to talk about this topic because I think it needs to have more conversation in the fitness space. Exercise is great, but not when it's actually starting to damage your body. Again, like you know, fueling your body is is good, but under-fueling your body for a long period of time can cause a lot of problems. And that's what we're going to talk about on the podcast today. So I am really excited to introduce Dr. Nicola Sykes. I am so thrilled to have Dr. Sykes on the podcast to talk about an incredibly important topic. So Dr. Sykes, thank you for being here. Welcome. I am so excited to introduce you to my audience. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. I was so excited when I saw your um, Instagram message from a while ago. I've been sort of off social media and it's just nice to get back into chatting with people and, um, you know, teaching people more about HA through through podcasts, which has been the main way that I've contact, you know, gotten in touch with people. So I really appreciate it. It's This is going to be such an important conversation and one that whether or not you feel like you have hypothalamic amenorrhea or not, I think everybody should listen to this because I... It's an important topic of conversation. It's an important thing to understand. And uh, we're going to talk about how you may, this may be impacting you more than you even think. Absolutely. And, and so don't just toss this away of like, oh, that doesn't apply to me. Um, I really highly recommend you listen to um, what Dr. Sykes has to say. So let's start with an introduction. Okay. Let's start with who are you? Why should people listen to you? Why do you know what you're talking about? And uh, just give us a little bit about, about the background on you. Sounds good. So I um, I have a PhD in computational biology. Um, so I'm a scientist by training. I lost my period myself at the end of my graduate school career. I decided to go on a diet with, along with a whole bunch of people in my lab. I was like, you know, I've got some love handles to lose. I always wanted to have, you know, that vein running down my bicep. I thought that looked so cool, you know, the six pack, all of that. And I was like, you know, my friends are going on a diet. I'm going to do that too. And I was also interested in getting pregnant. And so I was starting to read about that. And I read in so many places, like lose weight to have an easier time getting pregnant, lose weight to have a healthier pregnancy. So it's like, I was like, oh, this is great. All my, like, everything's lining up. It's all, you know, it's all going to work out awesome. Um, so I did, I was, and I was exercising a lot at the time. I was uh, weight training. I was playing ice hockey, volleyball, squash. Um, you know, I just, I was super active. So I cut my calories significantly and I lost a bunch of weight really quickly. And I was like, this is amazing. You it know, worked. I did get that, <laughs> you know, it totally worked. Yeah. Um, and then like six weeks later, I went off the pill to start the process of trying to get pregnant and I did not have a period. And I was like, mm. what's going on? And I was like, you know, maybe I'm, you know, maybe I've taken this whole thing a little too far. I didn't, you know, I didn't really know at the time. So I went to see my doctor and she said, oh, you know, it can sometimes take up to three months after you come off the pill to get your period. So, you know, come back and see me in three months if you still don't have it. Um, which little side note, uh, there are studies that have looked at period recovery after going off the pill. And basically, if you haven't ovulated by within a month after going off the pill, there's probably something else going on. So it's, you know, there's no reason to wait three months or six months or a year or whatever people say. Like, if you don't have your period by six weeks after going off the pill, something else might be going on. So yes, investigate. Um, so I ended up being diagnosed with hypothalamic amenorrhea about eight months later, you know, all sorts of diagnostic, whatever. Um, and the doctors are basically like, well, you know, maybe you could eat a little bit more and maybe you could exercise a little bit less and, oh yeah, fertility treatments. And so, you know, I kind of went down the path of fertility treatments. Um, I ended up having four failed injectable cycles, um, but then did end up getting pregnant naturally while we were waiting to do IVF. So it took me about 18 months from the time I went off the pill to actually getting pregnant. Um, and then I ended up on bed rest while I was pregnant and I found a message board online about hypothalamic amenorrhea and I started posting and, um, you know, I, I shared my own story cause I, you know, I, I'd learned a lot through that. And I also started kind of gathering other people's stories and people would ask questions and I would go like, look at, look stuff up in medical journals. Cause I'm a scientist. That's what I do. Cause you can read the medical journals and, and understand yeah, it. Yes. <laughs> <For everybody else. laughs> yep. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> 
And so after a while, you know, I, I, was, I sort of became the mother hen of this group. And, you know, there were a couple hundred people on the board at any one time. And after a while, they were saying, you know, you know so much about this, you should write a book. And I was like, yeah, I should. Because I mean, it's, you know, I looked around and there was still wasn't at the time, there was really very little on the internet about it. And, you know, so I was like, there's totally this is this is a place where people need more information, they need more guidance. And I have the knowledge. So um, yeah, so I it, it ended up taking me three and a half years to write the book, which was well longer than I expected. But you know, things happen. Um, it's about a year of editing, which also was well, you know, not 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 in my expectation. But um, <clears throat> I spent the first year doing a survey of all the people that had been on the board. So the book contains a lot of information about sort of other people's stories and journeys and answering questions that nobody really could give you an answer to before, like how long might it take to recover? You know, what kinds of things do people need to do in order to recover? Um, <clears throat> so I've been doing this for like 15 years now, and I would say that I'm probably the world's expert in HA because um, it's the only thing I do. You know, a lot, I think medical doctors, um, you know, they might know a little bit about HA. They might know about relative energy deficiency in sport, but they often have like it's their their focus is much more broad but for me this is like this is what i do mm -hmm. um so i've uh, recently updated the book it's been translated into french we're working on translations into german and spanish um and so uh i've you know learning more updating the research all all of that kind of stuff so yeah. that's sort of my who I am and why I'm doing this. That's fabulous. And the the book is No Period Now What? Uh, and we'll link it in the show notes. Um, but I highly recommend it. it. It is kind of a Bible. Like I, I, I look at it as like a Bible. It's like you put everything in here to really understand this. And when, when she says she's the world renowned expert on this, mm -hmm. like it's very evident in this book that you have spent your life figuring this out and learning about it and researching it and compiling the research that is available to us. And it's, it's just, it's fantastic. I, I'm a nurse by trade. My mm -hmm. husband's a medical doctor. So like the science in here just makes my little nursing heart happy oh, <laughs> to have, have it all in one, in one book and yet make it easy and understandable for the lay person as well. You know, mm -hmm. it sounds like that's what mm -hmm. you do on the, on the board is like, you could go read yes. the medical journals and then translate it in for a lay person to to be able to yep. understand it as well and that that's a gift as well not a lot of scientists uh, thank can do that. You. <laughs> so that's awesome so uh for people who are hearing us talk about hypothalamic amenorrhea and are saying and ha is what we kind of go short yes that, that's a mouthful yep. uh, can is. you just kind of give us a little quick rundown of what that is so it's all kind of in the name. So the hypothalamus is the part of your brain that controls most of your other hormonal systems. So it controls your reproductive system through the pituitary gland. Uh, it controls your thyroid, um, also via the pituitary. Uh, it controls your stress hormones through the, the adrenal glands in your kidneys. Um, <clears throat> it also uh, controls your water balance and growth hormones. So it's sort of master regulator. And it takes an input from your body, hormonal input, in terms of how much are you eating, what kind of stress are you under. So it basically is a, like it synthesizes the input from your body and then sends out signals to control all of those other systems. Um, the amenorrhea part is lack of a period. So it's lack of a period because of suppression of your hypothalamus is basically the, the easy way to understand it. Um, there are a few major factors that can suppress your hypothalamus. Um, biggest one is uh, nutrition intake. So if you're under consistently under fueling, 
um, if you're cutting out food groups, if you are doing some kind of intermittent fasting, those are all things that can quite easily suppress your hypothalamus. Um, the stress from exercise can also play a role in that because when you do it, particularly high intensity exercise that elevates your cortisol levels, cortisol suppresses the hypothalamus. Um, and so psychological stress as well can also suppress the hypothalamus. Um, so it's sort of a combination of those factors for most people that ends up leading to suppression of the hypothalamus. And one of the um, most obvious uh ways that that is manifested is through a missing period. So as you're saying as you're saying at the beginning this can be quite relevant for people even if they're not missing their period because depending on your genetic you know your genetic makeup you might be more or less sensitive to those sorts of those sorts of stressors on your body. So for some per some some person might sort of be underfueling by say 100 calories a day and lose their period another person might be significantly underfueling doing a lot of exercise and not lose their period but they might still experience a lot of the other symptoms that go along with the suppression of the hypothalamus and just the general underfueling i mean there's so many things that our body needs energy for and when we are consistently underfueling um, our body has to shut things down. It has to conserve energy so that it can keep us breathing, heart beating, you know, sending energy to the brain. Like those are the most important things. And so if we're under fueling, then the other things that are not quite as important get shut down, one of which can be the menstrual cycle, but also, you know, things like you can experience brittle hair and nails, um, bone density loss, uh, there's, um, you know, there's, there can be changes to the elasticity of arteries and I think it's arteries. Um, I'm not a cardiologist, so <laughs> that's, um, but, you know, so just lots of, lots of symptoms, um, increased need to pee, uh, you know, lots of anxiety, lots of sort of emotional symptoms. Um, you know, you've probably heard the term hangry. Absolutely. Our body needs energy to keep our brain well balanced and when we're not getting enough energy then it's you know it's much easier to spiral into anxiety and um you know being impatient and all sorts of things so that's why it's important for everybody to be fueling well as opposed you know and whether you're missing your period or not and it's also it's true for um people who have penises as well so you know there's much less obvious symptoms um i think the best the best name for this condition is probably relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, that sort of comprises the entire constellation of all the different symptoms that one can experience. Missing period being one of them and um, sort of the most obvious, but yeah. Fascinating. So uh, before we were, before we hit record, we were talking a little bit about um, the misdiagnosis of HA and that oftentimes when, you know, when women miss their period and that's concerning and they go in, uh, a provider will sometimes misdiagnose and miss HA and, and misdiagnose it as polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about the overlap of those two with the symptoms, mm -hmm. but the, the divergence of the two with the treatment? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's such an important point. Um, it's much more common for people to have polycystic ovarian syndrome than it is to have HA. So it's probably about 10 to 1 in terms of the ratio. So doctors are much more likely to see PCOS than they are to see HA. And so 
it's not, it's understandable that somebody would go in with a missing period and they would just say, oh, it's PCOS, not necessarily knowing that there are multiple other conditions that can cause missing periods. So um, there is a chapter in the book on diagnosis that sort of talks you through what blood work should be done, what things to look for, stuff like that. Because there are other things besides, so there's PCOS, there's hypothalamic amenorrhea, um, there's premature ovarian insufficiency, um, which is basically like another term for premature menopause. Um <clears throat> There can be physical issues that cause a missing period. There can be thyroid issues that cause a missing period. So it's really important to get to the bottom of what's going on. Um, so both PCOS and HA are called diagnoses of exclusion. That basically means you rule out anything else that could be going on, and then you know you end up with that as your as your reason. Um, <clears throat> so some things that are in common between PCOS and HA are obviously the missing periods or very infrequent periods. Um, if one does an ultrasound, there are often uh, lots of small follicles on the ovaries. Um, there are some technical criteria for calling an ovary polycystic, which is 25 or more follicles on one on either ovary or an ovarian volume that's more than 10 cubic centimeters. Um, I prefer the volume criterion because it's a little bit less subjective. Um, but a lot of times a medical professional will look at the ovaries and say, oh, there's lots of follicles. You have polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's like not necessarily the case. You can have a lot of follicles on your ovary without having PCOS. Uh, so I really, especially in somebody who is exercising a lot, watching what, you know, quote unquote, watching what they eat, um, it's much more likely that HA is the correct diagnosis. And so then you would look at then you would look at blood work, and that's where you can really distinguish between the two. So with with PCOS, you often have elevated androgens, so well above the normal limits. So androgens are the hormones that are sort of quote unquote typically male, um, like testosterone. Um, and then some of the precursors of testosterone. With HA, um, you will likely have a low level of luteinizing hormone, LH. Um, and that's often elevated in PCOS. So that that can be a, a nice place to tell the difference between the two. Um, you can have HA with normal LH. It's just very typically then a very mild case. You can certainly have PCOS without elevated LH. So it's really looking at the conglomeration of all of those hormones to kind of make a distinction between the two. And then looking at, you know, really thinking about somebody's history, you know, have you had an eating disorder? Have you lost a lot of weight recently? And by recently, it's, you know, Within the last few years, I mean, it doesn't have to be like really recently. Um, have you been on the birth control pill? I mean, the, there's nothing wrong with being on the pill, but it does mask missing periods. Sure. Um, and sometimes it can be given as a as a band aid, like, oh, you don't have your period, take the birth control pill, which I really, really hate. I really think it's important to get to the bottom of why your period is missing before you go start thinking about, okay, what do I do to get it back, um, and recognizing that the bleed that you get from birth control is not a natural menstrual cycle. You're not ovulating in a, when you're taking the birth control pill. That's how it works. Um, so just, you know, just really understanding that, understanding that birth control is not a solution to this. It's just masking the problem. Yeah. It makes you bleed every month, but it doesn't fix the actual problem. You're still yes. not ovulating, yes, which is exactly is the problem. Yeah. Yes. That's so, yep. that's so fascinating. Um, one of the things that you wrote in your book was you said, no matter what our conscious minds think, if the hypothalamus senses an unfavorable nutrient balance or stress environment, it will shut down the ability to cycle and procreate. And I, I loved this sentence because 
we I think so many of us are so good of like like we and we have in our mind the sense of like oh that's not me oh this isn't a problem for me oh I fuel my body well oh I I'm really good at stress management or <laughs> we tell I'm doing all the things I'm right. doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing I'm exercising I'm eating well you know right. So how do we often, like, can you talk a little bit more about how we often trick ourselves into thinking things are fine when really our body is giving us these signals that like, hey, listen, like things aren't actually fine. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just really important to recognize the um that so much of the messaging that we get around nutrition and exercise is actually detrimental. So this idea that less food is always better and more exercise is always mm -hmm. better. It's like, no, no. You know, absolutely. <laughs> exercise is healthy. It's good for your heart. It's good for your bones. It's, but it needs to be properly fueled. And if yeah. you're not fueling your exercise, then it's actually not doing a lot of those things, you know, a lot of those beneficial things. Um, so I think just really recognizing that, especially on the food side of things, like there's so many ways in which we are made to feel guilty about nourishing our bodies well, you know, like there are all these rules that come out about like, you know, don't eat too close to bedtime. Mm -hmm. Don't do this. Don't have dairy. Don't have gluten. Don't have sugar. You know, it's bad, 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 bad. Like there's so much fear mongering around food. And so then when we do all those things, we cut out all of those items, you know, maybe then we think, oh, I'm doing a really good thing doing for Doing the right myself. thing for my body. <laughs> yeah. And so it's just really hard to push through that messaging and recognize that, you know, there's like all of those little pieces are taken sort of out of context. And, you know, this idea that we should be consistently under fueling to be healthy, um, you know, it's just not evidence supported. And, you know, people often feel crappy when they're under fueling. Like there are a lot, uh, lots of people have GI issues and that's, that's when that drives me nuts because, you know, you start under fueling and then your body needs to like slow down your digestion in order to extract more energy. Um, it might not make the hormones or the enzymes that are needed because that costs energy. Like, you know, your digestion takes about 10% of what you eat, like calorie wise. Nobody ever talks about that. Um, so then you're maybe you're constipated, maybe you're bloated, and then you're like, oh, well, maybe it's the dairy, maybe it's the gluten. So then you cut out more stuff and then you actually feel worse. So then you then you start see, doing more things. Maybe you go see an allergist. Maybe you're told like you're allergic to all these things. You cut out even more. And really what you just need is to give your body the energy that it needs. Mm. Um, so I think it's just, there's so much there's so much information in the popular media that's sort of taken out of context, like studies about keto, for example, where specific, the keto is initially designed to help people with seizure Epilepsy. disorders. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and now suddenly it's something we all are supposed to do. And it's like, well, if you cut out carbs, like that's a quick source of energy for your body. If you're exercising without that quick source of energy, like that can actually do more damage. And, you know, your body just can't get the, you know, can't get what it needs. So that's, yeah. 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 It's really fascinating. And it seems like this is a, is a common uh, thing that happens with HA is like, if you don't actually get to the root of what 
the problem is, then any solutions that you're throwing at it are actually making it worse. And mm -hmm. so we, like you said, we go to the allergist and we say, oh, you have a sensitivity to gluten. And so then we cut out gluten, which now makes us more nutrient deficient, which now exacerbates the HA and continues yep. that cycle. And, and it's like, if we can actually figure out and diagnose what actually is going on and what the problem is, the solution to it is very different than yes. cutting out more things. Yes. It's actually what you- Or taking a bucket of supplements. <laughs> or, 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 right, all the supplements to reduce your bloating and all of the things. It's like, let's just fix what's actually causing that, yeah. which is underfueling yes. your body. So, and you call this going all in. So can you kind mm -hmm. of exp explain that term? What does that mean? So I kind of think of the hypothalamus as following Newton's first law. So an object in motion stays in motion, an object at rest stays at rest. Yeah. So when you have your ongoing normal menstrual cycles, you can do, for example, a lot of high intensity exercise. You can do a little bit of underfueling and things will be fine. Um, once you get to the point where you are underfueling enough or you're doing too much exercise and your hypothalamus is shut down, then it's at rest. And then you really kind of have to baby it to get it started again. So um, all in kind of addresses all of the factors that can be suppressing your hypothalamus all at once. And when you do it, when you do everything all at once, it's just that much easier for your hypothalamus to restart, for your body to take the energy that it's consuming and put it towards the things that it needs to. And, you know, you can get back to your normal life more, you know, more quickly. Um, so all in is really the, the number one thing is fueling your body well. So um, I have evidence in the book, it's chapter eight for 2,500 calories per day as sort of a general guideline for what people should be eating. Um, you know, that sounds like a lot. The the sort of guideline that you will read most places is 2000. Um, that's based off of sort of self-reported surveys where people will tend to under-report what they're eating. So the, the 2,500 calories comes from some much more rigorous studies using um, something called doubly labeled water, which is basically they have participants drink water that has that's radioactive but like lightly radioactive so they can measure how much you know how much energy your body's using or they have you live in what's called a room calorimeter so it's you, you're in a, con, a contained room and the, that also measures like all of the carbon dioxide that's coming off you all the water and everything and so based on those me mechanisms um we we can assess that for somebody who's active, which people with HA tend to be, um, about 2,500 calories is where you should be eating, what you should be eating in a day. So many of us are eating well below that and exercising. And so, you know, it's no wonder that our bodies are shutting down because they're just not getting anywhere near the energy that they need. So 2,500 calories a day is a basis. You know, it's not, it doesn't have to be perfection. It's a guideline. It's basically just to give people an idea of like, if you're eating significantly less than that, this is about where you need to be. I don't think that counting calories is beneficial overall. Um, you know, I generally tell people like count for a day or two so you can see what 2,500 looks like and then just like let go, eat what you want, you know, all of, all of that stuff because counting and tracking is stressful. It's just an added layer of stress that, you know, permeates our day. Um, so that's the first thing. Cutting out high intensity exercise is the second part of going all in. Um, this I find is actually often harder for people mm -hmm. um, because 
a lot of us really enjoy the high intensity exercise that we're doing. Mm-hmm. It feels fantastic. I mean, I, you know, I play ice hockey still. I love it. It's like I'm sprinting. I'm getting a great workout. It's so much fun. Um, you know, I know a lot of people feel the same way about running. I will never be a runner. Um, but, you know, people love it. And, you know, so it's, it's hard to give that up, but the stress from the exercise, as well as the energy that it's burning, can be enough in and of itself to prevent your hypothalamus from starting up again. So it may not, like, as I was saying before, it's if somebody has a normal menstrual cycle, they can do a lot of high intensity exercise and it's fine. It's just something that suppresses your hypothalamus enough that you can't get, you can't get it started again while you're doing high intensity exercise. Um, so my general recommendation is if you're doing some kind of planned movement to keep your heart rate at about hundred beats per minute. Um, and that's based on the cortisol that's generated as you go, you know, as you challenge your body more than that. Um, so then there, you know, there are a few other components, you know, making sure that you're eating regularly through the day, eating some carbs, some fats, some protein. Um, you know, those are, those are sort of the general goals of all in, but it's really just about feeding your body well and, cutting out the high intensity exercise for the time being. And that just gives your body the energy to repair everything that it needs to repair and, you know, sort of get things started again. Yeah. That's so good. And, and I know a lot of people uh, freaked out when they heard that. <laughs> so we're going to talk yep. about yes. on this topic a lot. <laughs> I, I know you know that because your book like addresses all of those fears <laughs> mm-hmm. that people, mm-hmm. when they hear 2,500 calories and they hear cutting out exercise, it's like, if, if you just told me to eat 2,500 and I can keep my exercise, I might be okay because I can like counteract it. But then the cutting yeah. out exercise, like you said, is like, oh gosh, now I, you know, now I'm really, yeah. all of my babies are taken away from me. But even what you just said about you can counteract that. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's the problem. That's is the if problem. you you know you you can't counteract it because your body needs that energy yeah. to you know to rebuild and restore and repair and yes. get back to a place of being truly healthy. I mean, I think that's you know I think that's something that's really important. Is you know we're often so worried about like oh I can't eat too much sugar because it's quote unquote unhealthy. I might gain weight and get diabetes and be unhealthy. But when you don't have a menstrual cycle, you're not actually healthy. And when you're consistently under fueling, you're not actually unhealthy. You're not actually healthy. So it's like we just have to kind of like reorganize our thoughts in a way, like stop being afraid of those things that might happen down the line, probably not. Um, And think about where you are right now and what your body is dealing with right now. And like, like, let's figure out how to address that instead of doing things now for fear of something that's probably not going to happen and is not a reality at the moment. Right. Diabetes is not happening right now. (laughs) Your unhealthy behaviors and your body is unhealthy right now. So let's let's prioritize fixing that and and we can deal with the other stuff down the road, which is probably not going to happen. Um, that's really, it's really, really good. And so for this period of time of all in, I know you talk about in the book that you recommend at least six months, uh, will you talk to more of us about that recommendation? Cause I think some people are like, oh, I can do this for a couple of weeks and like, then I'm good and I can add my exercise back in. And it's kind of like, whoa, step back a little bit. So talk to us a little bit about that recommendation. Um, so it's really, it, I mean, it comes from so many places. One is just allowing your body time to, as I, as I, as I've been saying, restore and repair and regenerate and kind of get everything working again. Um, and sort of resettle in a place of being more balanced. And the other really important part is the mental side of things. You know, it's, 
it is easy to do this for a week or two weeks. I mean, for some people, it's not even easy to do that. Like some people it's, you know, even adding a few hundred calories is a big challenge, you know, something to work, work through, work towards, but just kind of redoing your understanding of how your body works. I mean, so much of, again, so much of the messaging that we get is fear-based. It's like, if you eat a cookie, you know, you're going to double in size overnight. If you don't work out one day, you're going to turn into a puddle of jelly and, you know, lose all of your fitness. And it's like, none of that is real. None of that is based in biology. Like our bodies don't actually work like that. So taking a bit of time away from the high intensity exercise just gives you a chance to recognize that your body doesn't need it in the way that your brain has been told it does. You know, like I said, I think exercise is fantastic. It's, it really is super healthy when it's well-fueled and when it's not obsessive, you know, it's like you can take a day off weightlifting and it's actually probably better for you. You know, you can take a day off running. It's probably better for you because then your body can rest and repair. You know, if you're exercising every single day, Think about why you're doing that. Like, what are you getting out of it? What are you giving up to be doing that exercise every day? And so that, you know, the three to six months, whatever it is of being all in really gives you a chance to kind of reevaluate your priorities, see things that you've been missing because you've been so focused on your food and your exercise. You know, it really gives you a chance to rebuild some relationships that are outside of exercise. Um, you know, plus you probably feel like I was saying more patient and more balanced and less anxious. And that also helps in building relationships. And, um, you know, it's, it can be a very lonely existence when you're just going to the gym every single day and, you know, you're not going out to eat with friends because, oh my gosh, they, you know, the menu is, there's too much on the menu and I can't deal with that. And so I think the mental side of recovery is also really, really important. And that takes, that takes well more time than the the physical side of recovery, sure. honestly. Yeah. Makes a ton of sense. So I know one of the big fears that women likely have in their heads as they start this process is fear of weight gain. And and that can be a hard pill to swallow that, you know, this may lead to some degree of weight gain. And that actually may be part of the point. That may be part of the yeah. recovery process. So what suggestions do you have? And you've already mentioned some of them. You know, I love this idea of refocusing on like, I'm not healthy right now. <laughs> Instead mm -hmm. of uh, uh, weight gain will cause me to be unhealthy in the future. It's like, yeah, but you're not you're not healthy right now. So I love that one. Yeah. Any other yeah. suggestions that you have of working through that, that mindset struggle that so many women have when it comes to weight gain? Yeah, I think it is really, really hard, again, because our society puts so much fear on us around so the much. idea of being big or getting bigger. You know, yep. it's like, in some place, it, you just kind of get this messaging since you're very, very young that like, being big is sort of the worst thing that can happen. Like, please, come on. I mean, there are plenty of people in this world in big bodies who have lovely lives. And, you know, this idea that that's the worst thing that can happen to you is just ridiculous. Um, but it sells. It sells so many things. So, yeah. you know, it's all over the media. Um, so there are a few books uh, on this topic that I really, really love. There's More Than a Body by Lindsay and Lexi Kite. Um, the tagline on that, that is your body is an instrument, not an ornament. Um, and there's, uh, Sonia Renee Taylor's book, uh, your body is not an apology. Um, there's, you have the right to remain fat by, oh shoot. I'm forgetting the author. Um, my apologies. Um, I'll come back to that at the end. Yeah. We'll link it um, in the show notes. <laughs> oh, Vir Virgie Tovar, I think. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So 
all of those are fabulous. And I think it's just, it's, it's a really good way of shifting your mind to focusing on the things that you do as being the most important things about you, as opposed to what you look like. Um, and it's just so helpful in our entire lives. Like when you don't worry as much about your appearance, you can get out the door twice as fast in the morning. Um, you know, as you age, you don't worry so much about like the gray hair or the wrinkles. You know, it's like, you spell, spend well less money on products that you don't actually need. <laughs> you know, it's just, so I think that that's something that I've really come to appreciate through my journey in this, in this arena is I've just come to a much healthier relationship with my body. Like I appreciate my body for what it does for me, not for what it looks like. I mean, you know, I go out in sweatpants and whatever I, you know, t-shirt. I just, I, I'm just me. I'm just me out in the world. And, you know, if someone else wants to judge me, that is their problem, not my problem. You know, I, I just move in the world the way that I feel comfortable. Um, you know, I gave up wearing high heels long ago because why would anyone do that? Um, <laughs> you know, just a little stuff like that, but all of it kind of plays a, it's all just about building this self-validation and self-worth that's based on who you are and not what you look like. And it just, it, it just makes moving through the world so much easier in, on a myriad of levels. That's really, really good. Um, for podcast listeners, I'm going to direct you back to episode 87 because I actually interviewed Lexi Kite. She's phenomenal. And mm -hmm. um, the title is Struggling with Body Image. Listen to this. And uh, I highly recommend their book. We'll link up all those books that you just recommended in the show notes. But I think there is a lot of work that a lot of women can do to really separate who we are from what we look like. Mm -hmm. And the more that you're able to do that and recognize that you aren't your body, it's you are completely separate from that. It's such an empowering place to get to. And really you know, is. this this process of like maybe having some weight gain and and focusing on your health and holistically, maybe that push that you need to really do that inner work to break free from that I am my body or I mm -hmm. I deserve to I need to look a certain way for other people or or whatever. Yeah. Um I love the chapter that you have on expanding mentally and physically. And in it, you talk about how to deal with comments from other people, because I think that's another fear that a lot of women have mm -hmm. is, yes, I don't want to gain the weight, but then what are other people going to think about me if I do gain weight? And, you know, we, we live in a world where we unfortunately often have to navigate comments about our yeah. body, unwanted comments from other people about our body. So, you know, how, do you have any suggestions of how we can handle this? If, if that is something that occurs, we can't control other people. So how do we, how do we handle other people's judgments of us? I think that's probably one of the most challenging things about this. Um, so first of all, you know, wh what I was saying before is that, you know, you are not anybody else's opinion of you. You are your own self, and that's the most important thing. Um, unfortunately, our society feels very free to comment on other people's bodies, especially women's bodies, and especially if you're, you know, pregnant or if you, you know, you have a change in what your body looks like. Um, so, I, you know, I think that sometimes just calling people's attention to that, like, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable with you commenting on my body. You know, that's. And you can change the you know, change the conversation immediately, or you sure. can just leave it there and like let them marinate. <laughs> marinate in, on it. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I and it's. I mean, and a lot of times those comments are well intentioned as well. Sure. Um, and so also, I think recognizing that you know people aren't generally trying to be nasty to you. You know, they're you know people might say, 
oh, you look, you look really healthy. You look so much healthier. Um, you know, if you're focused on, I'm feeling bigger in my body, they're commenting on my, you know, they're commenting on me looking healthier. That means I've changed. That means I, that means I'm quote unquote fat. You know, it's, that's a lot of internal, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Mm, twisting of what the person has actually said. Sure. So I think really, really being careful about that sort of just taking comments for what they're worth, letting them drop if they're, you know, if they make you upset, just be like, I don't need that person's opinion. That's not, that's not who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but also not twisting what they've said to be a negative comment when, you know, maybe it's not a negative comment. Maybe it's just meant as a, you know, maybe it's meant as a compliment. Again, I don't think people should be commenting on others' bodies. I think, yeah. you know, the more that we can work ourselves not to comment on other bo- other people's bodies, certainly with their children, not commenting on people's body size, you know, like compliment people for their smile or, you know, for the great work they've done. Um, you know, there's so many things that we can compliment others on. Um, that are not what they, what they look like. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think we, you know, training our children from a young age that, you know, we don't need to talk about other people's bodies. We don't need to judge other people's bodies. um, I think can be really helpful. And I think a lot of times it's the self-judgment that's the hardest. Yeah. Um, You know, I, so I, one of the things that we say in the book is, um, you know, think about what you're saying to yourself. Would you say that to your best friend? Would you say that to somebody walking down the street? Most of the times it's no. And so we're, we are often our own worst critic. And so really trying to get away from that, you know, that's where sort of getting away from the focus on your body helps. But also, you know, if there's a part of your body that you just, you know, you're really unhappy with, think about why, think about how you would talk to a friend about, that part of their body, you know, for me, I, for a long time, I hated my thighs. I hated the fact that when I would sit down, they would spread out and I would tell myself they look like tree trunks. And now I'm like, you know, these thighs are fantastic. Like they're so strong. They they let me play ice hockey. Like, you know, the fact that they spread out when I sit down, like that's what thighs do. (laughs) That's just normal. Where did did we get Um, the idea that that was abnormal? (laughs) Right. Right. Why is that a problem? Yes. Yes. I mean, really like thinking, thinking about how you would, um, you know, how you're talking to yourself and the negativity that you're putting on yourself and trying to transition that, you know, it doesn't have to be loving yourself. It doesn't have to be loving your body. I mean, you should always love yourself. Like I take that back, love yourself for sure. You don't have to, you don't have to necessarily love every part of your body, but just think about it. Like that's the way my body is. And I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, nobody's body is perfect. I mean, I think there's, um, there's some people on Instagram, like Danae Mercer is the one who comes to mind. She's often showing like her, her stories and whatever, like how people on Instagram pose themselves and like pull their clothing in like really weird ways in order to look a certain way, but it's not reality. Yeah. Um, and so I think just kind of getting away from the idea that we need to be perfect. Um, you know, our bodies are, everybody's a different size, shape, color, you know, and it's all good. It's, really it's good. all good. It's really good. So let's talk a little bit about the the timing of recovery and what that that process looks like. So how long does it typically take for a woman to be able to get her period back after she's going all in? What does that transition look like? And and is this like the new normal where we're not doing exercise or eating you know twenty five hundred calories or what does that that next step uh, look like mm-hmm. for someone who's in mm-hmm. recovery? 
Okay. So when I wrote the book, um, one of the questions that I asked on the survey was how long did it take you to recover? Sort of from when you decided I need to get my period back to when you actually got your period back. So the average time at that time was five months and the sorry, the average time was eight months. The median was five months. Um, the median is lower than the average because there were some people for whom it was two or three years. Time, yeah. Um, yeah. I noticed in my support group uh, not too long after that, that there were many more people getting their periods back sooner than I would expect based on that being the median or the average or whatever. So I did a much less scientific survey in my Facebook group. Um, and I found that the median time was more like three months. And I think it's because after my book was published, people know what all in means. They know what they need to do. And so well more people are actually just biting the bullet, like saying, okay, I'm just going to do this so that I get it, you know, get it over with basically. Mm -hmm. um, so the median is more like three months these days for for somebody to get their period back. Obviously, it's dependent on so many factors. I mean, it depends on where you're starting from, how long you've been sort of underfueling, um, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, brief side note, the amount of time that you've not had your period doesn't correlate very much with how long it takes for recovery. Um, so there were some people who'd been missing their period for 20 years, and it was still sort of in that, you know, five to eight month kind of time frame. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's 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 more when I say it matters where you're coming from, like how underweight are you for where your body wants to be, for example, um, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. Um, and obviously our genetics, like some people are more sensitive, some people are less sensitive. That's just the way it is. Um, so I really encourage people not to compare with others around them because that just, again, that just leads to negativity and self-doubt and everything. And I can promise you that this works. I mean, thousands of women have used this to recover missing periods and, you know, feel better and all, you know, it's just, it's, it's well proven at this point. Um, so... Yeah, so somewhere around three to six months is sort of a general guideline for how long it might take. Some people take longer. There's a chapter in the book called Still No Period that offers some guidance and suggestions for, you know, if it is taking longer than that for you. Um, and then, yeah, once you do get your period back, um, this is actually a time that we still need to sort of maintain what you've been doing for all in. Um, I found well too many people who get their first period. They're like, yay, I'm recovered. Um, let's go back to all my exercise. <laughs> let's go back to under, you know, intuitive eating, quote unquote. Um, and, you know, then their second period is nowhere to be seen. So I recommend waiting until you've had three periods before you start adding exercise back before you start thinking about changing food um and then once you get to that three month mark you're still like it's you still can't just immediately go back to sort of your previous level of training it needs to be a slower ramp up so another reason that i suggest waiting for three cycles is that gives you the opportunity to learn about tracking your ovulation figuring out what your personal signs are ovulation or tracking you know tracking temperatures using one of the ovulation monitors um or so all sorts of ways you can do it that's also a chapter in the book um but i think it's really 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 important like i cannot stress enough the importance of tracking your ovulation it's so helpful as you're sort of working to make changes, like adding back exercise or making changes in your food, because you can, you can just like, you make a small change, you see, is your ovulation affected? If it's not great, you can add some more exercise or, you know, do something else with your food. If it is, 
then you wait a little bit longer, you give your body a chance to equilibrate. And then, you know, as your ovulation comes back to normal, then you, you know, then you can add a bit more. Um, so the other, the other really important thing about sort of life after those three periods is not changing food and exercise at the same time. Like if you want to add exercise, you should actually add a bit of food to kind of make sure that your body is still feeling well-nourished and, you know, getting the energy that it needs. Um, and a lot of people, you know, over time, the goal is sort of intuitive exercise and eating. Um, for many of us that have had HA, intuitive eating means eating a bit less than we have been. So that's why I sort of said, quote unquote, intuitive eating. Um, you know, so it's just something to be careful about, you know, just making sure that you really are consistently fueling your body well. Um, you know, over time, like, yeah, I, I don't count calories. I haven't counted calories in uh, 16 or 17 years now. Um, and I just, you know, but I know that on the days when I'm playing ice hockey, I need to eat a little bit more, um, you know, and so it's just really like listening to your body. Also understanding that, um, there is a discrepancy when we do high intensity exercise between the amount of food that our body asks us for and what it actually needs. It makes no sense to me. It does not make biological sense to me, but that is the reality. So for someone who's, you know, if someone wants to get into back into marathon training, for example, after having a, had HA, really being diligent about nutrition and fueling well and not even necessarily focusing on hunger signals because the 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 high intensity exercise can dampen our hunger signals and mean that we're not fueling as well as we need to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um I know I'm going to ask this question because I know people are thinking this question. <laughs> and mm -hmm. that is the question of if we gain weight during the recovery process, can we expect to lose that weight or is that now our new normal? Um I really, really, really don't like to focus on weight um, yeah. because I, I know think that I, yeah, I know, I know, because I know. <laughs> that totally, totally. Um, you know, but again, think to yourself, like, why is this a problem for me to be in yeah. a bigger body? Like really, really dig into that question. Really think about why this is something that you're asking yourself or asking me, um, you know, for many people, there is a, a, change over time in weight distribution, what have you, you know, as you add more exercise, you might lose some weight, you might not lose some weight. And I think, I think really being okay with that, being okay with your body at the size that it wants to be is so important. Um, you know, I really discourage any kind of deliberate underfueling. Um, you know, so maybe you, maybe you might lose some weight and that's fine. But if you're saying to yourself, I don't like how my body is. I'm not going to eat that cookie or I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to skip breakfast or whatever. Then that's really just going right back down that slippery slope to HA and all of the associated symptoms again. Um, you know, another one that I just want to point out that people might notice is feeling cold all the time. Like that's mm. a, that's yeah, a that's big a one. one. That's a big mm -hmm. sign of, um, you know, your body not getting the nutrition that it needs. Yeah. You know, I just, I think that, um, as I said, I think, I think exercise is fantastic. It's super healthy. I, you know, I, I think people should be, people should exercise as much as they want to, as long as it's not sort of a, for these obsessive reasons, like changing your body. Um, fueling that exercise well is really important. And, you know, just kind of let your body do what it does. I mean, it's interesting. There was um, one person that I worked with, uh, she noted after recovery that she was, 20 pounds heavier, but her marathon PR went from 330 down to three hours. Wow. So it's like often people are like, I need to be small to be a good runner. It's like, right. 
Yeah, you need to be you well fueled, well fueled to, be to be a good runner. Be a good runner. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah. so good. Well, this yeah. has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on and giving of your wisdom and your expertise. I, I highly, highly recommend um, your book, uh, No Period, Now What? Like I said, we'll link those all up in the show notes. So if you want to check out those books that she recommended, I will um, link them up for you. Um, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time and coming onto the podcast, sharing your knowledge and expertise. This has just been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Can I put in a little plug for my podcast? Yes, please do. Okay. So um, I'm, I've done two seasons. I'm on hiatus right now because like I said, I'm working on the tr translations and everything, but um, people can find my podcast at noperiod.info slash all in. That's just all of the episodes. Fantastic. Um, so we also, we end, we actually interviewed Lindsay Kite. So the, oh, the twin sister. You yeah. listen to the other half on her podcast. <laughs> yes. Um, yep. And then do you have any, um, I know you had mentioned like a Facebook group. Is that a paid Facebook group for clients or do you have any like resources if somebody's wanting to have a community who's kind of going through some of this Similar things that they're going through. So I moved off of Facebook for a number of reasons. Um, but so I do have a support group. It's at noperiod.info slash support. Awesome. Or if you're trying to get pregnant, um, noperiod.info slash TTC. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the, you know, it's a really nice group of people in there. And um, it's, it's really helpful to have other people to talk to who understand yeah. what you're going through, because many of us don't yeah. know anybody else in real life. And so, you know, some of the concerns that come up, I mean, some people, you know, some people you might tell, like, I have to eat so much more than I'm used to. And other people are like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And it's like, well, yes and no. And yeah. just having somebody that understands why that's a challenge sure. and, you know, helps you work through it can be can be really useful. Yeah, yeah. yeah I can just see how having a community of people who get it. It can, in this situation is so valuable and so important. Yes. So yes. we will link um, all of those things up in the show notes. We'll link up the podcast. We'll link up everything you just shared right now so people can okay. find you. And one last thing is I do I do work with people one on one. So awesome. everything from like a small like a blood work consult just to look at your blood work and you know let you know what I think about your diagnosis um to like longer sessions or working with me on an ongoing basis. So Sweet. that's all. Awesome. Yeah. That's fantastic. Amazing resource if if this is something that you're really wanting to tackle and and heal and get, you know, heal your body and get a little bit healthier. And your mind. And, and your mind. mind. <laughs> yes. So good. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Sykes, for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you too. I thought that was such an important topic to bring onto the podcast. Again, one that I feel like is not talked about enough in this space. I'm all for exercise. I'm all for macro counting, but it doesn't mean that it is for everyone. And it does not mean it is for every stage of life or every season. And I think that is really, really important to acknowledge. Not everybody is going to be helped by being in a caloric deficit. And in fact, a lot of women need to spend more time out of a caloric deficit fueling their body well. And I think if you are somebody who has struggled with HA or is struggling with over-exercising or continually under-eating, I really highly recommend Dr. Sykes's book, No Period, Now What? I've linked it all up in the show notes. So if you go to bicepsafterbabies.com forward slash 273, just the number of this episode, I've linked her book up. I've linked the three books that she mentioned, as well as all the information of where you can find um, Dr. Sykes and all the, the things that she referenced, her podcast, her Instagram account, and the different communities that she hosts. I highly recommend checking those out if this episode spoke to you. That wraps up this episode of Biceps After Babies Radio. I'm Amber. Now go out and be strong because remember my friend, you can do anything. 
Hey friend, have you heard the news? We have a Biceps After Babies Radio Insider List. If you love Biceps After Babies Radio, you don't want to miss a thing. Head to bicepsafterbabies.com forward slash insider to join the group. You'll be the first to know all things about the podcast, see some behind the scenes, and get special messages from yours truly. We want to make this a special community for those who are fans of the podcast. And last, did this episode particularly resonate with you? If so, will you please share it? Either send the link to someone who would find it valuable or take a screenshot and post it to your social media and tell your family and friends why they should listen. Make sure you tag me at Biceps After Babies so I can hear your feedback and give you a little love. And you know, if you aren't already following me on Instagram or Facebook, that's the perfect time to hit that follow button. Thank you for being here and listening to Biceps After Babies Radio.